Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. If you did not know, today is Palm Sunday. And it marks the the moment where we launch into Holy Week. Uh, This day commemorates the triumphal entry of King Jesus on a donkey where the crowd is waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now. Save us now. And the palm branches in the ancient world, the ancient Jewish world, and really the ancient world in general, represented victory and triumph. Uh, And more specifically, they were meant to point to a warrior-like king. And in this moment, we see Jesus come in on donkey, which is a symbol of peace. And he's entering into Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. Um, And they want him to become this warrior-like king to take down the Roman government. And a few days go by, and pretty soon they are saying, crucify, crucify. And he finds himself hanging naked on a cross. And so this next few days, you're going to experience in the story of Jesus a lot of different emotions. Today on Palm Sunday is an emotion of excitement. Oh, he's going to do it. He's going to take them down. Our time has come. Finally, usher in your kingdom. Now, Yahweh, the Messiah, is here. A couple days go by, you find yourself on Monday, Thursday, and Jesus is having a final meal with his disciples, and he's sharing about having to go to the cross, and there's confusion. It's another emotion of Holy Week, confusion. And then we get to the paradox of, quote-unquote, good Friday, because it wasn't so good. It was bad Bad Friday. And in that moment, you see despair, the emotion of despair. All is lost. All is done. Like our hope is exasperated. You have silent Saturday. It's just mourning and lament. But yet there's still, if you notice in the text, there's this still practice of Sabbath. And then you come to Sunday morning, the first day of the week, And there is this emotion of joy. And everything changes. Literally overnight. In just 24 hours, a movement is launched. And everything seems to change. And today, we move into Holy Week. And I'm thrilled. But today, specifically, we are wrapping up our Lenten teaching series on what it means to be human what it means to be human. I will confess to you that I have a lot to share this morning. I have a lot to share every week when I teach, honestly. Um, You don't have to affirm my self-deprecation, okay? Um, But I will say, though, did Vanilla not crush it last week? Come on. Now, let me tell you, I have no little boosy references today, okay? I don't have any cool cultural jokes to throw at you. 
I could. I just don't. Vania did it last week and killed it. I'm going to leave it with her, okay? That's her thing. I'm not going to steal her thunder. Um, but she did a phenomenal job, and we're deeply proud of, of Vania. So way to go. Um, but we've been in this human teaching series asking the question, what does it mean to be human? Asking the question of who am I? What do I need? What do you need? What do we need as humans to thrive and flourish? The very first week, we looked at the Imago Dei, the image of God, the intrinsic nature of the image of God, the relational nature of the image of God with God, as well as the vocational nature to represent God as icons in this world. And then we also looked at this framework based in Galatians chapter 5 from the Apostle Paul around what it requires for humans to flourish. Three things specifically, freedom, meaning, and community. Freedom, meaning, and community. And today, we will wrap up our time together specifically talking about identity and the whole self. Identity and the whole self. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. I found it fitting this week as we wrap up this Lenten teaching series, recognizing that Lent commemorates the 40-day experience of Jesus of Nazareth in the wilderness. So why not go back to the moment right prior to him moving into the wilderness? If you can, you're able, would you stand for the reading of the scriptures this morning? I'd love to hear those chairs squeak as you stand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 reads, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God, come on, somebody, descending like a dove and alighting on him or resting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. You may be seated. Growing up, I really enjoyed playing video games. I deeply enjoyed playing video games, and specifically sports games. I just was one of those kids. I loved playing sports games as a kid growing up. Uh, Madden. Anybody like Madden growing up? Madden, PlayStation, loved it. It It's phenomenal. Um, 2K. I was all about some 2K. Anybody play 2K? Anybody know what that is? Not a lot of sports fans in the house. That's okay. (laughs) Something like 2K? You mean like 2000? Okay, get out of here. Anyway, it's an NBA game specifically. Uh, MLB The Show, loved it. NCAA football, before it got like shut down, loved NCAA football. It was wonderful, you name it. If it was EA Sports, I was playing it. Like I I enjoyed it. EA Sports, it's in the game, okay? Um, Quick shout out to the Masters that's happening right now. Tiger Woods PGA Tour. Loved it. I enjoyed it. It was phenomenal. I thought I had the best graphics in EA sports games back in the day. It was wonderful. But one of my favorite things about these games were that you could create yourself. You could create yourself in the game with gear, all kinds of gear. These old NBA games, you could put on Jordan 1s in the game, all these cool sneakers. It was awesome. You could put your own tattoos on. You could change your hairstyle, your eye color, your, you know, your shoes, like I said, whatever, all of it. You could create yourself, your height, your weight, whatever. Uh, for some of you, though, sports games is, is not helpful, um, but you might have played something like Sims. 
Anybody play Sims growing up? Some of you like, I don't want to actually uh, confess that here this morning, um, but I love Sims, you know, uh, or some nerdy RPG game. Maybe you got into nerdy RPG games growing up. I don't know. Um, maybe it was Minecraft. Anybody's like, anybody like love Minecraft? Yeah? Did none of you play games? Like, what is this? <laughs> like, you're just sitting around playing Scrabble in the dark with no electricity? I mean, come on, we're products of the 2000s. Like, I'm, I don't understand. FIFA, okay, finally. Jeez, we got some primitive people in the room, all right? I feel, like, really bad. Um, but even within the world of EA Sports or any PC game, and even more so digital avatars, how many of you have a digital avatar on your phone you've created? Digital avatar, yeah, totally. We are given, through all these mediums, the message of society. Create your identity. Through a video game, you can create your identity. Through this little avatar, create your identity. But if I were to talk to many of you and ask to see your avatar or create a player, I would bet that most of them don't purely reflect who you truly are. And the same could be said for the real, tangible you. We hear in our moment this echo constantly around us of be true to who? Yourself. Be true to yourself. All the while, we spend a lifetime trying to create or define or figure out who we really are. And let's be honest, it's liberating. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Find out who you really are. It feels liberating, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting, confusing, conflicting, draining, and full of pressure. And we have just one shot. You got one shot to figure out who you are. You know, I found it interesting. You don't really hear the idea of a midlife crisis anymore. You know why? Because so many people are experiencing identity crisis in their 20s or in their teens. They're 15 and they're like freaking out about who they are. Like you don't have to be 50 going and buying some random nice you know, foreign import car because you're freaking out about your identity. You're doing this as a 16-year-old or as a 20-year-old or as a new mom or as a, as a husband, whatever it may be. There is great pressure and it's draining and it's confusing. Yet at the onset of Jesus' public ministry, we see the exact opposite in conjunction with his identity based on what we just read. So I want to pose a question to you. Where does Jesus' identity come from? Where does Jesus' identity come from? Why don't you talk to the person beside of you real quick for fun? It's like a couple of seconds. Where do you think Jesus' identity came from? Talk to the person beside of you. It's not rhetorical. I'm being serious. If there's no one beside of you, talk to yourself. It's fine.
Okay, great. Great. Some of you started talking about your weekend plans. That's not what we were trying to discuss. <laughs> Where are you going to lunch? Where did Jesus' identity come from? Texas Roadhouse? No. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> Here is the fact. Based on what we just read in the inspired, authoritative scriptures, Jesus' identity was given, not created. Jesus' identity was given, not created. When we read the passage in verse 17, it says, And a voice from heaven, so it's coming from heaven, not even from earth, from heaven said, this is my son. The idea of is is an ontological idea. And ontology is the study of being. It's a statement of being. This is. His identity was given from a voice in heaven, specifically the Father. It was not a created identity. Dr. Tim Keller, who we've referenced a lot in the teaching series, even Vania did last week, says that Christianity is different from other identities in that it is received and not achieved. A created identity brings much greater pressure. Much greater pressure. The tricky part about identity, especially the dichotomy we find ourselves in within modern society, or as Vania popularly coined the quote-unquote West Side, and so the sociologist Charles Taylor has done a bunch of deep work around this idea called the authentic self, which to synthesize this situation we find ourselves in means that you and I are told to go inside of ourselves, go inside of ourselves, and define who we are, figure out who we are. Who are you authentically? And then come out, present it to the world, and have others affirm such defined identity. But here's the situation. No one can define you. You must define yourself, which is contrary to prior societies and Eastern ideals around identity. So no one can define you. No one gets to tell you who you are. You define you. Go inside yourself. Find your authentic self. Again, this is contrary to prior cultures and societies. And it's actually prior, uh, it's it's very foreign as well in non-white cultures. This is a very Western European idea. This all sounds well and good, I think, for most of us when we think about it. So where is the problem? The problem is twofold. And I alluded to one side of the fold earlier. Very rarely do we find our purely authentic self. Very rarely do you find who you truly are as though it's some kind of seek and find game and you found the treasure. You know why? We lie to ourselves. How often have you said, I don't trust myself? We contradict ourselves over and over again, do we not? We have like a little voice in our head that's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So who are you really? Are you this voice or are you this voice? Which one? 
We contradict, we lie to ourselves. Uh, Dr. David Benner, who is a, a Canadian psychologist, who I just started reading one of his books, which is phenomenal, by the way. Um, he makes this statement. He says, the human capacity for self-deception is astounding. This is taught by scripture and confirmed by psychology. Some people are highly skilled in deceiving others. However, their duplicity pales in comparison with the endlessly creative ways in which each and every one of us deceives ourself. This book, The Gift of Being Yourself, I just put the book up there because it's wonderful. I encourage you to check it out. It's a really short little read. It's very helpful in terms of navigating identity and interlocking that with our formation, especially within the scriptures. But we as human beings deceive ourselves. So when we say, go find your authentic self, it's a lifetime of searching. Psychology says we contradict ourselves. So who are we really? Second issue with this modern notion of go and define yourself, but no one can define you is that identity requires a witness. Identity requires someone recognizing, pointing out, and confirming our identity. Instagram is a perfect example. Social media is the quintessential example of the fact that we need a witness of our identity. So, we must define, but others must affirm. And when we don't receive affirmation from the identity that we have defined and not given anyone else any say, it produces self-doubt. So our identity must be seen and heard. It must be seen and heard. Whatever we've created, we present it, and we're seeking and demanding everyone go, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. I see it. That's you. That is you, that is you, that is you. Here's the major catch. When we are all in a room together, that is the world, especially in the U.S., in the modern West, all of us at the same time are screaming at the top of our lungs, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see this is who I really am? And when we do that, we all drown ourselves out with the noise. And no one is truly seen and most certainly no one is truly heard because we're all yelling at the same time. And so we find ourselves in this constant identity crisis with great pressure. Benner goes on to say that the more we identify with our psychologically and socially constructed self, the more deeply we hide from God, ourselves, and others. There is a notion in psychology around a false self and a true self. And I found it fascinating that in the scriptures, the metaphor used for the false self is an orphan. But the true self is one who is beloved. All of us have a false self. We have an image we want to project to other people. Think about when you have a, you know, maybe a, a little sibling, or maybe this was you, or you have a kid even who's fourth grade and fifth grade, and they come home and they're like, Mom, no one likes me at school. Like, I have to be, I, have to, I can't even be myself. Or I have to be the class clown just so people will like me. Can I, can I do my hair this way so people will think I'm, like, cool? We see that at a young age. And we can't act like we, 
don't see that as adults. We do it all the time. This is part of who we are. We have to have people witness our identity. But Jesus of Nazareth doesn't construct his identity. He doesn't create it. Instead, he is called a son. It's not constructed. It's given. It's received. Major difference. Major difference. This is who you are, meaning Jesus doesn't need anyone else's approval for who he is. No one else. Because his identity has been given. He doesn't need it from his mom. He doesn't need it from his disciples. He doesn't need it from the Pharisees. He doesn't need it from Caesar. He needs it from no one else because it's been given already to him. He doesn't have to create anything at all. Notice, though, how his identity is linked, again, to belonging. It's linked to belonging. His identity is in relation to the Father. His identity parallels his relation to Yahweh. He is identified as the Father's beloved Son. And I think it's interesting that in this passage, it seems as though there may have been other people there with him. It's a public declaration. Because John the Baptist is like, I heard a voice. In other gospel accounts, like, I heard a voice. Like, I saw the Spirit of God, like, descend on him like a dove. It's just happening publicly, and he is identified in relation to the Father. And as I've mentioned before, identity, which a lot of us, I think, struggle to define identity. Part of one of the challenges we have in the, in the modern era is a linguistic issue, defining words. What do words mean? This is the English problem, I think, honestly. What do words mean? And so we've looked at the fact that identity in its essence is about oneness. Identity, if you look at the etymology, you look up identity etymology, you will see oneness. It's about belonging. And I would even say existential stability. Where do you find your sense of stability? What is the rock in your life? That is your identity. Now, here's the deal. We have multiple identities. We do. But there certainly is a hierarchy based on our choosing. We choose our identities, and we have a hierarchy of them. And real quick, here are some of them in terms of societal models of identity. Here is how some of us in this room and in our communities define who we are. See if you resonate with any of these. I am what I do. This is a performance-based identity. The second is I am what others think of me. It's a popularity-based identity. It could be even I, I am what others think of me and based on how I look. I am what I desire or I am my passions. We talked about this briefly a couple of weeks ago. And the last one, especially in a consumption-based society, I am what I have. These are, these are fundamental models for identity where many of us get them from in our moment. I think it can be reduced down to these four. And they're all performative in nature. They all require some sort of construction to, to show to the world. I am what I do, right? I am the fact I make six figures. I got a great 401k. 
I'm climbing the corporate ladder. I am what I do. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I've made it this far. Look at me. Hey, look, Ma, I made it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Can I get a disc? Okay. Anyway, trying to be relevant here. I am what others think of me. My outfit, how I look, what I reveal. I want people to clap. I want a boy to go, man, look at her. Or I want a girl to go, man, you look kind of fresh, right? I am what others think of me. Or I am what I desire. I have these passions within me. This is who I am. These are my passions. These are my my desires. So that's who I am. Or again, I am what I have. I am my house. I got a nice house. I got a beach house. I got a nice car, right? I got a brand new Ford Bronco. Or I got a BMW. I got whatever your car of choice. I am what I have. Here's the challenge. It's shifting sand. It's ever-changing. It's not stable. None of these are stable. And one of the ones I think that often gets forgotten in the church that we need to talk about is things like, I am my community. My identity is based in this group of people. And then they fail me. And now I have, quote-unquote, church hurt. Can I just be honest? The church ain't never hurt nobody. People hurt people. People hurt people. But we can't put our identity in things that are created. David Bennett talks about how when you put all your weight on something that's created, it will always crush you. Always. I find that to be so fascinating. Another thing is, and I'm going to talk about this a bit at the end here, I got a lot, okay? So we're, we're journeying today. Is especially in the South, we, we define our identity based on if we're married or not. I am my spouse. Or I am if I, I, I have arrived if I've, if I've gotten married or not. That is a lie. You know the hardest season of my life has been? While being married. Straight up. Jordan would say the same thing, right, baby? Yes. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But these are models of identity, and some of us resonate with these. All of these are way too fluid and performative. They're ever-changing, as I said. They leave us unstable, especially when crisis comes. When crisis comes... Your title and your work means nothing. When crisis comes, the fact that you got a $50,000 car means nothing. When crisis comes, the fact that you got a lot of people who like you on Instagram, it means nothing. It's ever-changing. It's not stable. A stable identity is one that you can trust with your life. And you have to ask yourself with these different models, Can I trust them with my life? Can I trust my performance with my life? Can I trust my popularity with my life? Can I trust my passions with my life? Hello. Can I trust my possessions? Definitely not, because everything depreciates. If you've ever taken an accounting class, hard goods depreciate, okay? A stable identity is one you can trust with your life. It's an anchor that can keep you. 
And this is about faith. We either trust in God as our anchor or we trust in man. We trust in creator or we trust in created. We fall on either one of those spectrums. John Tyson says, secular culture's view of identity has pulled its view of human value from its root system, full of value but not connected to the source of the value any longer. Jesus' value is rooted and stable because it doesn't change based on his mood or feelings. If the Father is pleased, he is secure, safe, and grounded. It can't fail. So, what does this ultimately mean? This is the most important point of my teaching today. Who I am can only be answered when we know or when I know whose I am. You better write that down in Jesus' name. Who I am can only be answered when we know whose I am. Because we all belong to something or someone. The question is always who or what? And is it stable or is it changing? Jo Saxton, in her book, The Dream of You, which we have out front, it's on identity, says, if we are going to embrace our full identity, know our name, and live out our vocation as we speak with our true voice, if we are going to embrace who we are and what we are living for, we need to know whose we are, that we belong to God by adoption. We belong to God by adoption. Listen, you started your life as an orphan, lost in darkness. Some of us came in this morning, you're still feeling like an orphan. You still feel like an orphan. Notice the father says in this passage, my son. My son. Not just a son or even the son. It's my son. This is possessive. But Jesus, in his human freedom, confirms this as his identity. John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, this isn't sameness. This is about union. This is about togetherness. This is about being locked. Jesus accepted in his baptism that he belonged to the Father, which he couldn't have rejected. None of us can reject that. We actually belong to the Father. We are the Father's. But... He could and you can reject living into that identity. You can reject living into, and Jesus in his freedom accepted his entire sense of value, self-worth, and identity was solely based on the one given or graced by the Father. That's what grace means. It means a gift. And he has given this gift by being called a beloved Son, with whom the Father is well pleased. You know, many self-help gurus and books will give you a list of affirmative statements to say to yourself. Things like, I'm a strong and powerful person. I can handle whatever comes my way. I'm entitled to my happiness. Or I'm a beautiful person. 
yet. You still question that photo you posted that you only got 10 likes on. Or you still feel defeated when you wore the nicest outfit you have and not a person said anything about it. Or you got a promotion and your spouse never acknowledged it. But I thought all you had to do was just affirm yourself. It's not enough for us to believe it about ourselves. We need others to confirm it. But what if instead you could recite what an eternal, loving God has said about you from the beginning of time, rooted in the scriptures over thousands and thousands of years? You are loved. I'm going to try to look at everyone in this room. You are loved. You are free. You are accepted. You are justified. You are beautiful. You are delivered. You are adopted. You are healed. You are valued. Just go read Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 has at least 15 promises of God for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Which is to say that when we have this new identity in Christ, what is true of Christ is true of you. And it's true of myself. What if you could recite these promises? You don't have to recite them for yourself. They've been given to you. You are loved. You are free. You are valued. You are accepted. You are beautiful. You don't need a spouse to look at you and say that. When they do, great. But there's going to be times where they're like, you know what, you annoy the living mess out of me. I don't really like you very much. Or a friend is going to hurt your feelings. Or you're going to be betrayed by someone who you're in deep community with. Or your job's going to fire you. Or your nice car is going to get in a wreck. Or your desire is going to leave you feeling like you're in shame constantly. Just saying it to yourself over and over again. No. But what if you could just recite promises that have been there from the beginning of time, no matter what's going on in your life? But this requires all of us accepting the fact that we don't merely belong to ourselves. It sounds good. It sounds good until you think about the responsibilities that come with it. Think about those of you who, the very, very first time you moved out of your house and moved out on your own. Think about how bad you're like, I want to get out of the house. And then think about how quick it was you start calling mom and dad and asking for something. <laughs> Sounded good. Until you're like, oh, well, my tire's flat, and I don't know how to change a tire. Or, I forgot how to cook, or I don't know how to cook. So can you make a homemade like, meal for me? It sounds good, but there comes great responsibility and pressure. We don't merely belong to ourselves. We, in fact, just like Jesus, we belong to God. And it is only when we belong to God that we truly come to know who we are. And listen, we can disagree on that. But I just want you to test the hypothesis. I think it's true. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. Sin isn't just a checklist, friends. There are certainly things that you shouldn't do that are not alignment with what God has for you in terms of being fully human. But at the end of the day, at the root of it all is the fact that sin is building your self-worth and value on anything other than God himself because it's sinking sand. It's temporary. It's temporary. Romans 14, verse 7 through 8, which 
quick side note, all summer long, we're going to spend our time in Romans. So after Easter, we're going to do a seven-week series on the I Am statements of Jesus and John, and then we're going to jump into a teaching series on Romans. Oh, all the theology nerds are like, oh, yes. And all the people who like just want to talk about like topics, they're like, this is terrible, dude. Terrible. Anyway, just a quick note, Romans 14, verse 7 through 8. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. Now, here's what's deeply fascinating. The earliest creed and public confession of the early church, do you know what it was? The earliest creed? and public confession of the church, don't be embarrassed. You can be right or wrong. Jesus is Lord. It contrasted Caesar is Lord. It's the earliest confession of the church. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, he proclaims in Acts chapter 2, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart with an embodied trust that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You could even go back to Luke chapter 2, where the angels proclaim that for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Finally, Jesus himself confirms such a title of himself on the night he washes his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus is like, yeah, I am Lord. Yes, I'm teacher, but I'm also Lord. We must, we must have awareness of what we are saying when we make such a profession. That is not something to be said flippantly. It has great implications for your life or your lying. The word Lord is kyrios in the Greek, and it means this, and I find this to be so in tune with what we're talking about. To whom a person or thing belongs... The possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner, one who has control of the person, the master. So, if our human identity has much to do with that which we belong, then to say Jesus is Lord is fundamentally a statement about our identity. At our very core, our deepest identity, the top of the top, It is fundamentally a statement about who we are and how we identify because it is about belonging and Lord is a person to one, to that which one belongs. Now keep in mind, as I said, this doesn't eliminate other identities. Jesus was a carpenter. He was a brother. He was a teacher, a man. He was a Jew. He was a single celibate man at that. But it does reorder all other such identities and surrendering them to Christ, believing and trusting he knows a way better than ourselves, saying all these secondary identities, they belong to you. Do with them what you will. Do with them what you will. 
In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes it clear, no one, not a single person, can serve two masters. And the same Greek word for master is the same Greek word for Lord, kyrios. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two lords. It's impossible. There is only one Lord. You belong to one. You are possessed by one. You can't be possessed by many. Keep in mind, whatever or whoever is your master is the one in which you will serve. If it's your performance, you'll serve it. If it's your popularity, how you look, you'll serve it. If it is your passions, you'll serve it. If it is your possessions, you'll serve it. The word devoted here in this passage means to join to or cling to. So when he says that you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, the word means to join or to cling to or to cleave, which seems to go a step even further than belonging. Because here's the deal. You can belong and not be devoted. Okay? You can belong. You can be, quote unquote, possessed by something and not be devoted to it. Right? But this idea of devotion reinforces oneness. Again, it's the idea of clinging to or being joined to. Once two things are joined together, they become one. When two things are linked together, they become one. Unique, yes, but one. If our identity is about what we belong to and that which we are one with, whatever we are joined in mind, heart, body, and spirit, that is where we find not only our deepest and core identity, but also our master, also our Lord. And if anything this morning, I want you to be able to articulate what or who is the master in your life. Basic self-awareness. Let's just talk about it. Who or what is the master or Lord in your life? So what then are we to do? Romans, we're going to Romans again. This is just like a foretaste of what's to come. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's not just singing a song. It's not just showing up on Sunday morning. It's not even doing good deeds. If you have not offered your entire body as a living sacrifice, then you're not experiencing or giving true worship. The word bodies here is soma in Greek. It's nothing deep. It's nothing metaphoric. It's your literal body. The body as a whole, the instrument of life. We aren't fully surrender to Jesus as Lord unless our entire body is offered and belongs to him. We don't just offer him our heart. We don't just offer him our mind. We also offer our body, which includes our behaviors. We offer what we do with our body to him. In an age we have discussed uh, earlier that seeks to distinguish acts of the body from thoughts of the mind or emotions of the heart, the writers of the New Testament seem to think they are all intricately connected, especially the writers of the Old Testament. They're all intricately connected. And our moment seems to view the body as an instrument of pleasure 
rather than an instrument of life. Or as a meat sack that has no intrinsic value and can ultimately be replaced by artificial intelligence and robots. We are in a moment where there's a conversation about how our consciousness as humans by 2050 potentially could be uploaded to a robot and we could literally replace ourselves where the conversation between human and robot is getting thinner and thinner. So what does it mean to be human? But here we see the importance of the body. There's this notion of what I do with my body doesn't really matter at all. Doesn't really matter. Oh, really? Go out on window and run around butt naked. (laughs) You find out very quickly what you just did with your body really does matter. (laughs) Or it is viewed as something to be conquered. Get a facelift. I need to do something with my hair. I need to get like liposuction. I need to do. I need to chisel. I need to look. I need to look like this projected image of myself. I've got to. There's this common phrase out there that says, "You are not your body," as if you are detached from it. While I agree that your body does not define you, and it doesn't, because we've already we've already talked about who defines you, you do in fact have a body. And the only way you can experience this life is through your body. Your greatest failures, guess where you experienced them? Through your body. Your greatest joys, where did you experience them? Through your body. What's the greatest moment you've ever had in your life? Like, is it a vacation? Is it an accomplishment? Like, what is it? Guess how you experienced it? Through your body. The greatest pain, trauma, loss, heartache, surgery, whatever. How'd you experience it? Your body. All of the pain of life is felt and experienced through the body, but also all the joys of life are felt and experienced through the body. I read this very fascinating New York Times article, not Christian at all. It's entitled, The Devastating Ways Depression and Anxiety Impacted the Body. Here's a quote from it. The human organism does not recognize the medical profession's artificial separation of mental and physical ills. Rather, mind and body form a two-way street, What happens inside a person's head can have damaging effects throughout the body as well as the other way around. Think about the last time you got nervous. What happened? You might have started to sweat. Your stomach started to kind of rumble. Or when you got angry. I'm in middle school. Like, kids about to get in a fight, you know? Them them kids are breathing heavy, you know? It's like, I'm so mad right now. And like, y'all calm down, brother. Like, kid's okay. Like, he just took a piece of, like, gum or something. It's all good, dude. You know? Like, now, if he stepped on your sneakers, like, you better back up, bro. Real talk. Um, But you start experiencing it through your body. Emotions are felt through the body. As we will celebrate next week on Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus confirms this. This is very important. It wasn't just his consciousness or his emotions or his spirit that was resurrected. His entire physical body was resurrected. And Thomas was given the opportunity to touch his hand. giving a glimpse of what is to come in the new creation. Because in the new creation, you and I will have a physical glorified body. Read Philippians chapter 3. You will. You will not be some kind of like Casper type figure up in the clouds. You will have a glorified physical body. 
Remember that in Genesis chapter one and two, that humans were made, formed, crafted, shaped with a body in his image, made to represent. We can't respond to that vocation without a body. You can't represent God without a body. Uh, Nijay Gupta, who's a New Testament scholar, says it's very unfortunate that American Christians tend to associate their faith primarily with heart and soul and life after death. Actually, spend some time in the Old Testament, you will see Israel knew their relationship with God to be very here and now and very much in the body. Jesus died for your soul. Yes, Jesus also died for your body. Your body, your body, your physical body. The current New York Times number one nonfiction book right now, if you go Google it, and has been on the list for over a year and a half, is entitled, and I quote, The Body Keeps the Score. There it is. There's proof. There's evidence. The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. This medical doctor exploring trauma's impact on mind and body and how to heal. But in a world that's Gnostic and thinks that I'm, I'm separate from my body, that's not true. The body matters. And because the body matters, your body matters to God. And what you do with your body matters. And guess what? What others have done to your body matters. What other people have done to your body matters. And what you do with your body matters especially given that our new identity is in Christ, which means when you surrender to Jesus, you are now one with him, and we form one collective body. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I'm going to read it in the message. This kind of is the wrapping up of our teaching today. It says this. This is the message paraphrase, okay? Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. And I meet plenty of believers who are just like, yeah, I'll just kind of, like, I'll just kind of get by. Like, what can I, like, what can I do? Right? Like, how far can I go? You're starting from the wrong spot. You know the old saying, first you eat to live and then you live to eat? Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. God honored the master's body by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as the master's body. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. And here we go. And I want us to really sit in this. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one, which here's that idea of identity with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. And let me just sidestep real quick. And I'm, I'm going to actually apologize for not being more direct, bold, and honest in space like this around sex. Because it's not loving. It's enabling. Your commitment level with another individual, another, your, 
boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, your intimacy level cannot exceed the commitment level. You want to know what you can and can't do? Your intimacy level, physical intimacy level, should not exceed your commitment level. The highest point of commitment is marriage. The highest form of physical intimacy is sexual intercourse. It's beautiful. If that's imbalanced, you will experience pain and heartache. And I've been around too many people who have no boundaries at all. And I'm telling you, sitting and talking to them breaks my heart. And listen, I can testify as a human being my own life experience. And it doesn't produce flourishing. Okay, back to the scriptures. Just keep that in mind. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God, given and God modeled love for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. If he's the artist and you're the painting, that painting's his. And you're beautiful. You're a beautiful painting. But it's his. So let people see God in and through your body. How we as humans connect with each other and express ourselves within our body constitutes our sexuality. Well, we went there. Yes, we did. Our sexuality is more about human interaction and intimacy than about intercourse. Again, this is a linguistic issue in terms of defining. This is why every time Paul talks about his desire to, quote unquote, know Christ more, the Greek word for know was an idiom for sexual intimacy. Paul's like, I want to know Christ. I want to know the spirit of God as though I am like in a deep sexual intimate moment with him. Fascinating. Psychologist and counselor, Dr. Julie Slattery, says your sexuality is either drawing you closer to God or it is a barrier of true intimacy and fellowship with him. It, it, either, it either is or isn't. And again, we can sit around and we can talk and we can wrestle and I want to do that. This is a space to do that. And I'm just kind of high level right now talking about this. Brand new book just, come out, just came out recently called Rethinking Sex by Christine Imbutz. Number one on Amazon right now. She's a Washington Post columnist. And there's been a bunch of different um, articles that have been written, Time Magazine, New York Times, Washington Post. And in an article she writes, and she isn't coming from this Christian Orthodox perspective. Here's a quote, and I... And I'm reading this to you, okay? In every other situation common to the human experience, eating, drinking, exercise, even email, we have come to realize that limits produce healthier results. It's unlikely that sex and relationships are exceptions to the rule. An unrestrained sexual culture hasn't necessarily led to better sex for all or to do better relationships. In many cases, it has inspired numbness, callousness, hurting others, and being hurt. And rather than being titillating, titillating, Sexual overload has become boring. 
Rules can make things more exciting, more beautiful, more open to the possibility of something better, even if we aren't there yet. That's not even a Christian writer. It's like an agnostic writer. Washington Post columnist writing this number one book right now on how we need to rethink sex and how it's impacting society. Sexual intercourse was created as good, and a lot of us grew up in the church, and then we were taught it was bad. That's wrong. It's not true. I rebuke that. It is good, but again, because it was created by a creator, it assumes a design and intention. It is worship and a sacrament. The Song of Solomon is an erotic book documenting physical intimacy between a husband and wife, which is one big metaphor for a more deep, beautiful, even erotic intimacy that can be experienced in the presence of God. Some of us just don't think that we can experience with God what we experience with our boo thing. And, and that's a lie. Because let me tell you again, and you're like, Spence, you know what, man? You need to stop because you're married. That gives me even more reason to be able to speak into it. Because sexual intercourse with my wife, it ain't all wonderful all the time. Like culture makes it seem like. Because you're trying to live up what culture is trying to captivate you with. It's supposed to be like that movie on Netflix. It's supposed to be like that book. It's supposed to be like that, that, porn, that porn video I just watched yesterday. And it's not, and I'm being so let down. Why? You crave something deeper, a deeper intimacy, something more that you can't experience with the presence of God. You can experience erotic, an erotic experience with the presence of God. That's what Song of Solomon is pointing to. Sex is actually an arrow pointing to what is to ultimately come. I find that to be fascinating. And I was never taught that growing up in the church, ever. It was just like, don't have sex, you know? And, and then when you get married, you can. It's going to be amazing. And, and, and you're, like, you're like, I'm good. And then you have it. And you're like, it's not that amazing, man. Like, you let me down, okay? My youth pastor let me down. <laughs> oh. It's like that honeymoon, great. And now we're back. And then you got a nine-to-five job. And it's like, it's been four weeks. <laughs> oh. We sit with couples that are engaged, and, and it's like, um, so tell me about sex. Do you guys have it like 20 times a week? And I'm like, honey, <laughs> look, no, we don't. <laughs> Maybe 20 times a year, okay? <laughs> this is real. Real. And again, if you're a single person, there's a reason why Paul was single and Jesus was single. Because they're experiencing even more so what all of us are going to experience at the consummation of all things. We'll experience the presence of God together. A single devotion to God. Singleness in the New Testament is about devotion to God. It's not about absence from marriage. It's about being wholly devoted to God. And you're like, I don't have time for another spouse, honestly. I'm be devoted to God and his purposes, and that's it. And that's why Paul's like, I'm begging you. This is not authoritative, but I'm begging you. You're whole and complete. But listen, you can be single, you can be married, you can be totally exasperated and broken if you are not wholly devoted to God. And if all of your sense of erotic sexual fulfillment is coming from a human being that is created, it's going to let you down every single time. Nijay Gupta goes on to say, God wants to remind us sex is good. It is a gift. Here's the thing, though. It is a powerful gift. Why? Why? Because it is a bonding agent. 
It is relational duct tape. God is not anti-sex, but he wants to teach us that it has a meaning and purpose. And here's the key to all this. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. We just read it in the message. Here's the NIV. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The word for united literally means glued, bound, joined with, devoted. Literally can be translated as glue. But whoever is glued with the Lord is one with him in spirit. If you are glued to something or someone else, you can't be glued to the Lord. And as I said a second ago, a quick note about marriage really fast. David Bennett says, marriage is a beautiful sign of the things to come, and so it is only natural we deeply desire it. We must remember that it is only a sign and not the signified. Great pain ensues when we worship a sign as if it were the very thing signified. Wonderful. Knowing whose you are today is everything in our pursuit of being fully human. It's the start of it all, knowing whose you are. It's not just doing things. It's not just showing up. It's knowing whose you are. Who do you belong to? Who is it that you belong to? That is where you begin to find your true sense of self. Saxton, Joe Saxton says, understanding our identity determines the life we live. I had a radical moment in college where I was like, I didn't know who the mess I was. I thought I did. I was so confused. And I had to go through some serious like cross moments, multiple and I still do, like the journey of just discovering who I truly am. But right now, we all are in a process of becoming more of who we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We, are being, we have been incorporated in him. And this isn't self-actualization, like pop psychology would say, but rather spirit transformation. Spirit transformation. So here's the goal, and I have gone long, and I am so sorry, but I think this is deeply, deeply valuable for all of us. To live into and out of what is already true of ourselves. This is the goal. It's the goal for all of us, is to live into and out of what is already true of ourselves. We all have a true self and a false self, but our goal is to live as beloved children of God. And here's the, here's the deal, friends, all of you. You are a beloved son and or daughter in whom the Father is well pleased. And you don't need anyone else to tell you that. And I realize that some of you have never had anyone tell you that. And you're searching for that. And I'm telling you right now, the Father is looking at you right now, and he says, I think you're incredible. I dearly love you. I want you, I want more of you. For most, our identity is rooted in our past or present, which is a heavy burden to carry, considering it can't be changed. But as those who are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms, our identity is actually rooted in the future. And so here's my plea with us all as humans. Be loved. That is my plea. Please, would you know today you are deeply loved. Be loved. Receive it. Bring your past. Bring it all. He says, just bring it to me. Be loved. Be loved. Be loved. Be 
love, and I'm not speaking as much to myself as I'm speaking to you. But some of us have sought love in all the wrong places. It's failed us. Be loved. Thank you.